0: This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology.
1: Look, we've all been down the path of integration, normalization, and operationalizing our security data. The common theme is a traditional SIM can't keep up. Which is why we say Run Panther. Panther normalizes your security data and integrates into your security operations pipeline to provide complete visibility across your environment. Panther is a cloud-native security analytics platform built for engineers by engineers. Learn more by visiting runpanther.io. Thank you, Panther, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. Have you ever had those moments where you get a question answered before you even know that you had that question? That's exactly what we had this episode. We spoke to Eric Goldman, VP of product at Panther Labs. And Eric walked us through his experience as a software engineer, as an expert in product and as a hopeful entrepreneur. The two questions that Eric answered before we even got a chance to ask them were, what's the difference between a product and a business? And also, what's the differentiator between a good company and a great company? And surprisingly enough, asking questions is one of Eric's superpowers. There's many more in this episode. Let's jump right into it.
0: What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show.
1: Glad to be back again, along with friends. This is a featured episode, and our guest this episode is Eric Goldman. VP of product at Panther Labs, also someone that has found themselves starting up a few companies, which we'll get into, but wanted to say, Eric, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Eric, your background is incredible from engineering to product, entrepreneur, really you run the entire gambit. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my background is as a software engineer. I've been coding since I was pretty young and sort of a self-taught programmer. Went on to study computer science. And as I became a professional engineer, found myself sort of incidentally uh, in product work over and over again. So I joined a team and sort of drift in that direction. I started a company that Didn't really go anywhere. It was kind of like Clubhouse, that podcasting sort of like voice chat app, but it was a long time ago. Ran into some interesting walls. I learned a lot about the difference between building a product and building a business. And then worked at Dropbox for a little bit, started a company, and now I'm over at Panther. So like you said, I've kind of seen it all. So in all of those different
0: roles, what would you say lends most to your personality, to your superpower uh, across the spectrum of technology? Because you have done a little bit of everything. Where would you say your,
2: your skills align the most? Honestly, I would say at Panther, it's been really great because I think for me, uh, with a software engineering background and a product background, being able to marry those two together in this role, working on a technical product as a as a PM.
0: And I know you said that you pretty much had the same idea for a product. I'd love to hear about that transition, what happened at
2: Fanta, and uh, hear a little bit about that story. It's interesting. For background, before joining Panther, uh, I co-founded a company called Vanta. Works in a different space, but it's on security and compliance. And so it's really focused on the compliance side of the house. And it's all about basically automating the process of getting a SOC to getting hip. Eventually, the goal would be to... Kind of remake this entire compliance standards world. And in doing so, I learned a lot about security and compliance and got more interested in the security side of the house than in compliance over time. Um, and so after I left Fanta, I actually sat down and sort of prototyped a new security product. So one that was kind of looking at that the other side of the coin and as I was doing that I started ramping up and learning a lot about security and the security ecosystem because I I was just so heads down building for compliance for like four years that it wasn't a space I really understood or knew and as I was doing that um, I basically bumped into Panther on the Internet like I saw what it was doing and I read some articles about it and realized oh they're doing the same thing that I want to do, but they're doing it much better. Which, you know, credits to the team and to Jack. They're all coming in from security backgrounds to build this product. It's like the product they wanted for themselves. So I actually cold emailed Jack and told him, Hey, I saw what you're doing. I really like it. Jack is actually one of the first customers at Vanta. So he was probably in our first 10 customers in a probably 1500, 2000 or so now. Um, and so I knew him and I knew the business a little bit and we got to talking and realized we both kind of had the same vision for what we wanted to build.
1: That's really awesome that you were able to just send him a cold email and get reconnected. And now you are the VP of product at Panther Labs.
2: Yeah, it's a funny story. And, you know, it shows how small the industry is. Everybody is connected to each other. And, you know, he had a lot of respect for what we were building over at Vanta. And so recognized me as, you know, someone that would be potentially interesting to talk to and, you know, credit to him as well for just, you know, being flexible and opportunistic and taking its like random LinkedIn message and and continuing that conversation. Right. And you
1: said something that was triggering to me. And you said there's a difference between building a product and building a business. What, do you, what did
2: you mean by that exactly? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. It's a place where a lot of folks get stuck. And they think about building something that they want or that people want. Um, and they're not really thinking about the long-term implication of that decision and, and what how that translates into a business. I mean, just as an example, take something like MoviePass. That's An amazing product, right? You get to watch, especially in like the first iteration, they basically said, you know, you pay whatever it was, like ten bucks a month, right? And you get to watch as many movies as you want forever. Yeah, you're like, oh, great, what an, I mean, that (laughs) is a perfect product. Um, is it a good business? You know, when you actually looked at it, it turned out they were just eating the cost of everybody's movie tickets. So, you know, there is that distinction, and it takes more than just something that people feel like is cool. That's the first product I built when I started a startup and it made me realize I had step one and I didn't have step two. So if you thought back to all of your experiences, what would you say is your superpower when it comes to all of this stuff? Oh, interesting question. I really like sitting down with customers and uh Getting very, very curious about what's happening. It's not sufficient to me to just say, oh, okay, they want to do this. Okay, let's go build it for them. It's constantly asking, why do you want to do this? You know, who are you doing it with? Where did this problem come from in the first place? Tell me more about your day and really deeply understanding their personas. And when you do that, you can step back and just kind of look at all the data that you gathered and realize, wow, there's like a, a really focused and opinionated and powerful product to build for these folks. But it comes with that like deep understanding. Vanta is a great example. That was a case where I started just talking to folks at at startups about, uh, you know, I basically said, tell me about your relationship to security. And they said, oh, I think all the time about vendor questionnaires. And I was like, what is a vendor questionnaire? And I just kept asking and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And that led me into this world of like SOC 2 compliance and vendor questionnaires and proving trust and data privacy and the enterprise sales process. And by the end, I just emerged with this, like basically not knowing anything about the space and walking out saying, I have a very strong thesis that I can build a product and it's going to be successful. And a lot of that just kept from, started with me just asking why over and over and over again.
1: We'll probably need to use you with our podcast where we want to run deep <laughs> down the questions we should be asking ourselves about our, our podcast and our listeners.
2: <laughs> oh, there you go. I need to improve my uh, my radio voice. Now. I'm really impressed with that sort of deep bassy <laughs> tone. It's, uh, uh, we'll get there in time. You know, it
1: also sounds like one of your superpowers in general is software engineering, product, and business. I'm sure you found yourself in a good blend being at Panther. They have The ability to write detection as code and you can build python within the platform as someone that is high level you're a vp of product how do you stay away from tinkering with the code and more of the technical aspects now that you're in the position that you are today
2: yeah it's a great question and it's a lesson that doesn't come intuitively to you know most leaders and they'll be the first ones to admit that being able to really step back and trust people um it takes time to get there and honestly, there's no substitute for, I would say, being forced to do it and then realizing just how powerful the the end result is. So you know, starting a startup, if you try and hold on to anything, the whole thing is just accelerating so quickly that you're going to get ripped away from it. So if you tell people, I'm going to review your code and then they say, OK, when oh, I'm going to get it, get it done tonight. Well, a million things come up. You don't get it done that day. The next day they say, what happened to the review? Okay, sorry, I I messed it up. I'm going to get it done tonight, I promise. Same thing happens again. Pretty soon, things aren't getting shipped, people are getting mad, um, and you learn very quickly. If I say, I'm going to get it done tonight, I better mean it, and you learn to just start delegating. Eventually, someone says, hey, let me review that. You say, okay, and you realize, oh boy, the system is running now. People are writing code, they're reviewing code, things are getting shipped, everyone's unblocked. By letting go of this, I've actually sped up the team significantly and then eventually as those folks ramp up and take on more responsibility you also realize that them having ownership of their area plus you've hired amazing people they start to actually outgrow you and outgrow the vision that you had when you were working in that area of the code or in the product and i think that's actually one of the most rewarding things as a leader is hiring somebody with who's really passionate and actually better than you in a lot of ways putting them into a place and giving them a clear goal and walking away and coming back and being surprised. So you start by being like, only I can do it. And you realize later, there are a lot of people that are better than me and it's exciting to to let them run.
0: You know, I'm curious, you, you mentioned your superpower, being able to ask those questions. And I'm willing to bet that it didn't start when you became an entrepreneur. I bet it didn't even start when you became an engineer. Would you say it started much earlier? And what are some of the the clues that led you to understand that as your superpower when
2: you were younger? It's something I've kind of realized in retrospect, but like there are very few things where I feel like there's a, you know, a, a wall of abstraction between me and my understanding of the the thing all the way down to, you know. I get sick or something, I want to know all about what's going on or I take medications. What is this? Why does it have this effect on my body? And I think learning and going to school, you realize things that are very, very, you know, presented as very complicated. When you really break them down, they're understandable. And that's been sort of a fun, a fun journey. And so, in a similar way, you look at something like security and you go, oh, I've never, I don't know anything about security. I've never uh, learned about this before. And you just start asking questions and eventually you realize, hey, okay, I feel pretty comfortable with my knowledge in this area. I Still have gaps, but I'm feeling pretty good. And after many years, you eventually get to the point where you have that strong thesis. There have been a lot of times when I've tried to really push myself in that dimension. I took a bunch of physics classes, actually. I mean, partially because I was interested in them for sure, but partially because when people would talk about things like quantum mechanics, it was always presented as this is the most complex thing that you can sort of tackle As a human being and it was fun to go in and there certainly is a lot of complexity there but when you break it down class by class and lecture by lecture you realize that everything is explainable everything is understandable maybe you move a little faster some days a little slower in others but you can always like just get your head down and, and get through all of it
1: you know before we hit record on this podcast we were just about to talk about the difference between a good company and a great company. And you were saying that you've experienced, maybe even worked at a few good companies, but there's very few great companies out there because of certain attributes or aspects. What are some of those differentiators from your perspective?
2: I think more than anything else, what distinguishes a good company and a great company is that a great company espouses a philosophy that goes beyond its software. And so it's a little apocryphal. I tried to look this up because I really like it, but someone once told me that the like root word of technology is basically like a, it's like a better way of doing things. And it's Mm. like, it's almost right from when I Googled it, but I like it so much that I I sort of repeat (laughs) it. And, you know, thinking about technology as a better way of doing things, the software is an enabler of that. But I think What's fascinating to me are, for example, a company like DBT in the data analytics space where they basically say, look, we believe that data scientists should be working a certain way with certain tools, and it's a broader vision of this job. And we build the tool that lets them work that way. Or something like Jira, especially back in the day where they said, look, we believe in the philosophy of agile development, and we are going to build a tool that enables it but also sort of espouse it and teach people how to do it. And our tool is like one piece of a larger story. Same thing with Airbnb, right? It's not just staying in somebody's spare bedroom, it's a different way of traveling and we want to invite you to travel in that way. To me, that's the, the distinction between companies that are sort of merely good and companies that end up being truly iconic.
0: I tend to agree with you about the technology bit, because a lot of times we think of technology in its most modern stage. We think of computers and software applications, things like that. But technology could also be tools, like the, the hammer was a technology at some point, making things better, easier, more efficient. What do you think about the future of technology? It seems like we're a runaway locomotive that's continuously changing and evolving, where do you think we're headed as a technology world? And what do you think about the cybersecurity of the future?
2: It's a deep question. I think there's a lot of stuff that's, things are changing very quickly and not just kind of the first derivative, but the second derivative, like the the rate of change is also increasing. And it's hard to know how that's going to shake out. My master's degree was in AI Back in 2010, and all the sort of techniques that I learned to do artificial intelligence back then, at this point, I don't think any of them are being used. Um, it's a completely different set of tools that we're using to solve AI problems. And that's happened in basically 11 years, like a full turnover. So now, you know, the work of AI is getting more and more broad. It's hard to really know what the next 10 years of that are going to look like, but it's not overrated or underrated. It's like sort of properly rated or maybe still sort of underrated just how much things are going to change with respect to cybersecurity. Well, there are, I think, a lot of different interesting changes in sort of the short and long term. In the short term, I see security teams becoming more like software engineering teams you know, we were talking about sort of good versus great companies. One of the reasons I love working at Panther is I think it does espouse a very clear philosophy, which is that security analysts should be more like software engineers and should be using the tools and techniques of software engineering and data science to do their jobs. That's controversial or like mildly in that not every team operates that way, but many do and they're very successful. And we think that that's increasing over time. And so our goal is to build tools for them. So that's how I see things shaking out in the in the like short to medium term. In the long term, it's a model of AI is just being able to scale out what we would call kind of intuition or human decision making. And it can start with small decisions that still have there's like the if statement to things that are a bit more fuzzy to something that requires just a tremendous amount of intuition and background knowledge and and you know needs to be trained on very little data. A lot of problems in security are about looking at something and deciding whether it's fishy or not, for lack of a better word. And AI lets you do that at scale. We don't have the techniques yet to train under those circumstances. The way AI works is it just needs lots of labeled examples. And that's very hard to come by in security. You're like, show me, you know, a hundred actual attacks and show me a hundred things that weren't an attack. And it's just hard to gather up the data in a way that is clean and easy and actually produces insights from AI. But at the same time, if I told you, hey, someone made this person an Okta administrator yesterday at 3 a.m. and their IP address was you know, Russia and they're usually working out of SoCal and you, know, you keep going on and you say, is this fishy or not? You not knowing anything about security would say, yeah, you should probably look into that. That seems weird. How did you come to that conclusion when you yourself are not a security expert, when you haven't been trained on a million positive and negative examples of an attack? There's just something there. And as we kind of learn more about learning and context in the brain and pattern detection, eventually the goal is to scale that out. We're a ways away from that, but I don't think we're a thousand years away from it. I think in our lifetimes, we'll have something pretty interesting and obviously that that changes the game for both attackers and for defenders.
0: You just tiptoed by one of the hot buttons at Hacker Valley, but I'm gonna go ahead and smash it for you. Ron and I agree on a lot of things, pretty much 95% of the things in the world we pretty much agree on, but there's something we disagree on and that's about automation. I'm in the camp of automation can do so much, and it can get us so close to closing out incidents. It can enrich data. It can do so many things for us, even some remediation. But Ron believes that you can automate everything end-to-end. I think in theory it's possible, but I don't think in practicality you can actually do it. Do you believe that you can automate security operations?
2: With the tools available today, I think you need to put everything on a spectrum. I think that there are some things that are you know, fairly trivial that you could go and automate. And just as an example, let's say, I don't know, someone shares a file outside the company. The normal follow-up is you go message them and you say, "Hey, did this have any sensitive data in it?" Um, and that's sitting in your run book. Can that follow-up be automated? Yeah, right? Like you write a little script that sends them that message and they click on yes or no. That one's pretty easy. But depending on their answer or depending on the surrounding context, can you automate a decision? Like if they say yes, should you loop in a human? Yes, you should loop in a human. Because now the context is so complex that I don't think you can fully automate an end-to-end flow. You know, maybe you even unshare it, but that was the wrong decision. Because yes, and I shared it with the appropriate parties. So if you kind of take all the work that a security operation center is doing. There's stuff all the way on the left and there's stuff all the way on the right. And the goal is like take all the easy stuff all the way on the left, get that automated, and then the only things that humans should be doing are things that require human judgment. So I don't believe in the like set it and forget it, but I do believe in the ability for automation to significantly reduce the false positive rate and to take things that are constantly firing and deal with them and triage them. One example is like we have a customer that they get port scanned, they can funnel that through something like a gray noise or through a threat Intel feed, they can make some very quick decisions on it in some limited but still high volume cases. And in those cases, unambiguously, they say we should just cut them out and they'll push a new rule up to Cloudflare and block them from uh, from continuing to, to hit their servers. So that's an end-to-end workflow that if a human looked at it, they would always make the same decision. Great, let's just automate it. And then they don't even have to look at it. But as there becomes more nuance, now the human comes in. So sort of a long answer, but it's like some things can be automated and the things that can be automated are often very high volume. And the more that you can pull those alerts away from your security analysts, the sort of happier and more productive they're going to be.
1: So short answer, the answer is yes. That is what I'm hearing, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that the the analysts today do not have these software engineering tools like you're
2: describing. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot that they can automate and if they find, like no one should ever be doing a repetitive task with data. I think that's just a very easy first principle because if they're doing the same thing over and over with data and they're not bringing in their human judgment, then that can be automated by a computer. Can that analyst, do they have the skill set to automate it? That's an interesting question. And that's why I like working at Panther is can I close that gap? And so if every day that analyst is waking up and making a decision that they feel like or a series of decisions that they feel like could only be made by a human that has nuance to it that's them doing their job effectively if they wake up every day and they see a cluster of eight alerts freaking everybody out and they go look this is just what happens when you create a new aws account right it says that the root doesn't have mfa enabled and it says this and this isn't encrypted and all that stuff and like if you just wait it's going to go away you know you're like why does that even need to be part of their day can we just group this up and say someone made a new aws account um like how can we help teams basically clean up their socks so that when they wake up, they can just look and make that quick decision. So we're just like pulling this context out of their head and putting it into the system.
0: So Ron, Eric just put it much more eloquently than I could ever. Does that move the needle on your stance?
1: It moves the needle closer to my stance, honestly. Really? Um, and,
0: <laughs> and I only say
1: that because of the goals that Eric and Panther have in mind, and that is to write more detections as code. I think that's really the solution there. I think, like you're describing, Chris, and even Eric, there is a somewhat of an art to security. There's an art to logic and reasoning. But there's also a science to it. And I think the closer that we can get to the things that we've understood as science to automation, the better.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And the more we can push things out of people's way so they can just make those decisions. Like today, you have to set up Git. You have to, you know, for us, we have this complex processing pipeline that we're able to build on behalf of our users that they don't have to touch at all. Like the zero to one work is so heavy that. Even just connecting your SOAR tool to your, you know, to Splunk, to this, to that, the more that we can just give people an interface to be able to think like a software engineer without having to have exactly that background, a computer science degree or something equivalent, the more we can give folks tools to create automation that makes sense for them. But I think a lot of what we see in the market are black box tools that claim to say you throw all your stuff in and AI is going to sort it out on the other end. And that's because people are buying what they want to happen, but the tools are basically over-promising and under-delivering. There's no real way around this sort of software engineering problem except to make it easier to do that sort of work.
0: When I think about the world of cybersecurity today, I think about this dance between vendor and practitioner. And I think there's two sides to the coin. And Everyone has a responsibility when it comes to bringing about these solutions. So there's someone that's listening that's either a vendor trying to build a product to solve a problem, or there's a practitioner listening that's trying to have a problem solve. And I think it's all about the clarity of the problem statement. What advice would you have for someone that's looking to clarify that problem statement and really get to the meat of the matter of what they need to
2: operate better in their environment? A lot of it is is understanding what makes their company unique. If you work at a, at a crypto exchange or something like that, you're thinking how do people get into the wallets, right? If they get into the wallets, then our business is done. And you're kind of working backwards from that to like, what's unique about our organization? How do we sort of enforce the security invariants that we care about? If those things are generic, if they're like, hey, we need to scan our Golang code for vulnerabilities. Look, pull a tool off the shelf, and use that as an input. But what's funny is the more I sort of dig into every organization, the more I learn what's odd about it or, you know, uh, we have people who say, oh, we have one G suite organization for every sub team. So sales has one and marketing has one and every time we share documents across all of our systems explode because they think we're sharing files externally. You know, there's like these cases where the security invariants differ company to company. And I think the point tools are great at describing what is common across everyone, but they're always going to be insufficient because every everyone is really a special little snowflake hmm. and they want to take that base layer and customize it to them. So as like a practitioner is doing that evaluation, I think what's interesting is saying, Uh, okay, we, we do our base layer, like we know where we're just like everybody else, but what are the few weird things about us and what does that imply about our security program? Eric, it's been a pleasure to sit down and have
0: a chat with you. For the folks that want to stay up to date with all the things that you have going on and all the great things at Panther Labs, what are the best ways that people can do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you go to our website, we're always publishing a lot of new content about Detections as Code, about developer-centric workflows for security engineers and analysts. We have some great webinars and some great video content and articles there. So definitely check it out. It's a really exciting way to do security. And I think it helps to surmount a lot of these problems that we've been talking about.
1: Excellent. We'll be sure to drop the link to Panther Labs in the show notes below. Eric, again, we really appreciate the time and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you so much
0: if you found value in this content it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee thank you